Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I think we're done. The campaign, of course, is not done. And the Ben Jarofsky <laughs> show is just getting started, all right? <laughs> Flannery, sorry, Mike, but we got a show to do. <laughs> Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, February 15th is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke. Yeah, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky, Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can, chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y. It is Tuesday, February 15th, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, it's the long-awaited return of WBEZ Bulldog Dan Mialopoulos and also making his long-awaited return, Attorney Jim Coogan. Now your host, I'd say long-awaited return, but he was on like Friday. Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Daily Down Tuesday, and here's why. Well, I think you all know why. Uh, the headline on my beloved Bright One, home delivered as it is every day, the Chicago Sun-Times, says it all. Demise of a daily. Jury finds Alderman Patrick Daly-Thompson guilty of lying to feds and cheating on his taxes. State law requires him to leave office. And by chance, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I had reached out to Dan Mialopoulos, the ace uh, bulldog investigative reporter for WBEZ, to come on the show and talk about my beloved hometown of Evanston and how they are just absolutely as abhorrent as the city of Chicago when it comes to protecting lifeguards. Because uh, Dan just did another story on this. And then the Daily <laughs> the daily verdict comes in and as I, I go, Dan, you're going to have to talk about this. So we're going to start by talking about that when I bring Dan on, but I got to say this, and Dan, I hope you're listening to this one. The part, there's so much in the stories of daily being found guilty and what he did and what it says about Chicago political culture and the intricacies of banking law and tax law, et cetera, and so forth. A very good column. I, I urge everybody to read by Mark Brown uh, about the case. But the part that hit this old baby boomer with just disbelief uh, came in the main story that the Sun-Times wrote uh, about the the, um, the verdict by John Seidel, Tim Novak, uh, Mitch Dudek, and Fran Spillman. Uh, but, man, they put the whole team on this story. Uh, and uh, they interviewed a – laughing. They put everybody – I'm surprised they didn't take the football Bears beat writers and put it on the story. Anyway, uh, they interviewed a juror. A 30-year-old juror who said, and I quote, 
She had never heard of the Daly family before the trial. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And Dan, it's just so unbelievable. I know I'm a baby boomer. I know I come of, I came of age in the in the sixties and the seventies. And Richard J. Daly was like this, like this omnipresent being that probably shaped my life as much as anybody else in a weird way. It's like opposition to him. If you follow what I'm saying, uh, it would be Richard J. Daly and Mike Royko, you know, and Linda Prey. you know what I'm saying? Like this, Linda Prey is the um, the independent alderman from Hyde Park. Mike Royko is the greatest journalist, in my humble opinion, the city of Chicago has ever produced. And then there's Richard J. Daly. I guess you could throw Studs Turkle in there as well and what have you. But the point is to not know who the Dailies are, you know, but I should get off my high horse, Dan, uh, before I turn over here by saying, when I watched the Super Bowl halftime show, all the millennials were making fun, fun of me because I did not know any of the songs that the rappers were singing. Eminem, I didn't know his song. I didn't know Dr. Dre's song. So I guess, you know, it's just like a generational thing. But wow, not knowing the dailies. Dan, were you as stunned by somebody not knowing the dailies as I am? Or you being a little younger than me, you can understand. Look, Ben, it's all relative, you know, and uh, time stops for no one. None of us uh, can uh, can stop time from taking its toll uh, in the case of the Dailies, you know, you're talking about Dick Daly. Richie Daly was the mayor even longer than Dick Daly. But let's do the math here. It's 2022. Uh, that young woman was, what, about 30 years old? And Rich Daly left 11 years ago now. So she was just a child, really, or just had become an adult when he left office at the end of, uh, what was it, 22 years. And he broke the record. Uh, that his father had said until his father died in office. And Rich Daly often joked that he would not die in office. And he, in fact, did retire. So it's all relative. She was, a, as I recall from the Sun-Times story, I think it was Mitch Dudek that tracked down one of the jurors. At some point, they brought up the fact, or one of the other jurors said, you know, these are the dailies, and they cut him off. They said, this has nothing to do with that. We have to decide this based on the facts. And, of course, the prosecutors will tell you that. But for me, the quote of the day was actually uh, our friend Nick Spazzato, uh, 38th Ward Alderman, who, having brought down the machines and the dynasties of the 36th and the 38th Ward of the Northwest Side, has now become you know, very much a Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson uh, Republican up on um, up out there by O'Hare Airport, and uh, his quote was that um, if this guy were named John Smith, meaning Patrick Daly Thompson, if he were John Smith instead of Patrick Daly Thompson, uh, then you know he would not be in this position that he got quote the royal screw job, and you know I think the better question, as I put it on uh, the Twitter website, as the kids call it is if his name were John Smith, would somebody have loaned him $229,000? And when he paid back like a few hundred dollars of it years later and no interest, they have been like, cool, cool. But, you know, as I understand that this bank in many ways did not operate, uh, you know, according to the laws, um, much less normal things. You know, we look at the details of how he got convicted. It's a pretty simple case. Sometimes you look at these corruption cases, you're like, I don't understand what these reporters are saying. But it's pretty simple. For any of us who are fortunate 
to be in the landed gentry or to think we are because we have some kind of massive mortgage on our on our house, um, you know, and it's a matter of public record, you know, you get a statement from the bank at the end of the year that says how much you've paid and how much you can take as a mortgage deduction. You hand it to, you know, an accountant or put it into TurboTax and it's a pretty simple uh, calculation. And we're supposed to believe that this guy was taking the mortgage deduction but not paying on the loan for all these years. Uh, and it cost the government something like $15,000 in um, taxes that he evaded. And they also accuse him of basically lying about it. So when the bank went belly up and somebody took over that loan, uh, he claimed, oh, I didn't know that I owed that much. I thought it was, you know, $110,000 or whatever the initial amount was. I for, you know, he forgot somehow. And they even had an audio of him talking to one of these things where, um, you know, you call them up and they said, this call is recorded for quality assurance. Well, that call was recorded and ultimately for use as testimony on behalf of the federal government uh, in the Northern District of Illinois, the U.S. Attorney's Office specifically. So quite a saga. Yeah, it is quite a saga. By the way, it's a great comeback to Nick Spazzato, Uh, And you're absolutely correct. He beat the Banks family uh, way in, in the old days of the 36 Ward. And this is where he was coming from at the start, Dan. Uh, I know this is going to be hard for anybody to believe this, but he invited me when he was getting started with his campaign running for office, either the first time or the second time, I can't remember which, he invited me to come out and talk to a group of politicos out there about TIFFs. <laughs> and listen, I got a fondness for Nick Spazzato, even though we're completely dia- diametrically opposed on every issue of the world. But I just have a soft spot in my heart for him because he invited me, this lefty reader writer out to his, uh, a restaurant. Where was it? Was it a restaurant? It was a pizza restaurant. It was a pizza restaurant. Which one? I remember. I thought he might. He used to like to meet people at Grandma Sally's, which was a diner on. Uh, I think it's gone now in Harlem and Higgins. No, it was a pizza restaurant, and he bought the pizza. He had, and it was. Oh, I don't want to go down this street, but it's a fascinating thing because there was a <laughs> lot of wannabe. Alderman at candidates who were uh, just ready to launch their careers. Michelle Smith was there. He invited all the uh, wannabe independents, you know, who are running against the entrenched uh, incumbenters. Uh, and uh, there I was. I w- <laughs> so I always have a soft spot. But you're absolutely correct uh, in your comeback. And, and Nick knows that in his heart. Uh, he's just standing up for his pal, Daley Thompson. Of course, Nobody else would have gotten a loan. And, you know, Dan, this is something that I've been thinking about since I was reading the Sometimes story about uh, the, uh, the the case. And a shout out to Tim Novak uh, and uh, Robert Herger. They, they did the man. They did the heavy digging for years on this thing. Um, but people there was like a knee jerk reaction. Like, well, this isn't your this isn't a typical Chicago politician corruption trial. He didn't get paid off to do X, Y, and Z, like dump garbage, allowing some guy to dump garbage in the ward, you know, like a typical Chicago corruption thing, or, you know, pay off to get a zoning deal. Uh, but I disagree. I think this is the more pernicious form of corruption in the city of Chicago that in many cases is perfectly legal. Uh, and in this case, you had a bank that was just acting like a piggy bank for well-connected people like, Daily Thompson. And I was thinking of Michael Madigan's uh, property tax appeals business and Ed Burke's property tax appeals business. They're both legal, but 
when you go and hire Ed Burke or Michael Madigan, you're really winning their favor. Because I believe any property tax attorney who can fill out a form can basically do the job that Ed Burke. Well, and it's Mike- a matter of public record that I do my own, but uh, my own appeals um, and most, and a lot of people do. And I think uh, history has shown, um, I haven't seen an analysis in recent years, but uh, with a new assessor, for instance, or, or board of review recently, but in the past, I've seen that, you know, if you or I file an appeal, um, we have just as good a chance as if we hire a lawyer or better, uh, on the other hand, um, you know, these are malls and, uh, you know, high rises and very, very large property owners that were hiring those guys. But, you know, back to, to what kind of malfeasance this was. And now he is a convict, so we can talk about it as such, I think, very confidently. You know, what you're talking about here is not really public corruption. I mean, it's corruption, of course, but it's is it really public corruption? And he has pointed out from the beginning that, what he did did not involve his duties as an alderman, okay? And that was a consolation for another alderman that was quoted in the trib today. Uh, I think it was George Cardenas who said, you know, it didn't. It doesn't make us look bad because it didn't have to do uh, with his duties. But, you know, that's like uh, you or I going and, and uh, you know, kicking a cat or something on, on TikTok as a soccer player recently did, by the way, and then saying, well, that had nothing to do with his soccer playing, even though he used his leg to kick the cat. It wasn't on the soccer field. And so it doesn't look bad on, on the other soccer players. Well, of course, it looks worse on the person that actually did that. But when you're the 37th alderman since 1969 to be convicted – uh, of a crime, whether it's a crime in, in the performance of your duty directly and, and you know, selling your office, uh, as you uh, described, uh, uh, you know, bribery kickbacks, or it's something like this, which is tax fraud and uh, and lying to the feds. You, you know, these are not things that um, that look good for the city council or for politics and democratic politics, uh, to be honest, in Chicago in general. Yeah. All right. Uh, I could probably fill up an hour uh, on the daily trial, but what I really wanted to talk to you about uh, and move on is uh, your ongoing investigations to sexual assault uh, at the beaches. You've moved north uh, from Chicago to my beloved hometown of Evanston. Uh, some people call it E-Town. Some people call it Heavenston, which I think is a satirical. Because uh, <laughs> people in Evanston think it's just such a wonderful place to live, Dan. So Heavenston. I haven't said pretty funny. Um, I I just am in a constant state of disbelief at each one of these uh, stories uh, that you produce uh, and what it says about our society. And I've talked a lot about the Chicago Park District lifeguard scandal. Uh, I've written about it in the reader, uh, following up on your work. Uh, and I just great columns. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. And um, I, I guess there's two questions I have, uh, and um, and then you can move into Evanston. The third question would be Evanston related to Chicago. The first question is, what is it about the culture of lifeguards that produces stuff like this, sexual assault case cases where uh, male lifeguards feel free to uh, prey on uh, their female uh uh, colleagues. And the other one is what is it about the culture of bureaucracies, both Chicago and now apparently Evanston that just instinctively looks the other way at stuff like this. 
And it was really bad in Chicago. And I, in my opinion, you proved, you showed it goes to my, the, the uh, cover up goes all the way up to the mayor's office. This is me reading into what you reported. And I also read reports uh, that have been produced about it. So what is it, Dan? Please help me out on both fronts. First, the culture of lifeguards. Second, the culture of bureaucracy. Go ahead. So the culture of lifeguards, both at the Chicago Park District with the, uh, you know, beaches that are up and down the lakefront and up in Evanston where there are another uh, five, six beaches that are um, run by by the city's parks department. Um, it's very hierarchical. I think you need to understand. So they come in and there you have teenage girls as young as 15, 16, and then you have managers, the vast majority of whom are male, who are in their mid to late 20s, sometimes even older, uh, certainly in many cases, at least in their early 20s. So there's that age gap right there. And the gender uh, differences in terms of who's making up the, the management ranks. And then you have a culture that sometimes is almost militaristic in a way. They need to be fit so that they can respond. Uh, and I don't want to say the high seas, but the lake is nothing to joke around with, right? You have to be a very strong swimmer, especially if you're called into action in an emergency, as, as they need to be prepared to do and as they do at times. Uh, now you have this situation and, and they have to continue to train uh, in-service sort of training as they go along. And my understanding is that even in Evanston, in the manual, as recently as a few years ago, and we've seen similar documents in Chicago, the idea is that uh, what happens at the beach stays at the beach. So if you have a problem, you can't go above your manager. But what happens if your manager is the person that's abusing you? And then particularly in Evanston, now you have a situation where the Civic Center, as they call the City Hall uh, in Evanston, is a bit away from the lakefront. Um, it's a bit away from downtown too. It, it's a it's an old uh, sort of uh, Georgian brick building, and they're isolated at the beach. They don't know who to turn to. They were not getting um, training. They were not being instructed on who they could go to. And in one case in 2019, where they felt a guy was being creepy and asking out underage girls, and even hung out with an underage girl. Uh, away from work, guy being in his 20s and being a manager with that sort of leverage and power dynamic vis-a-vis uh, -vis these teenage girls, underage girls, uh, they went to people all the way uh, to city manager at the time, a guy named Wally Bobkowitz. They went and talked to the human resources uh, director. They had somebody from Parks interview a number of them, and they only gave the guy a written reprimand. Uh, not even a formal reprimand, just a warning, I would say. Um, and we looked at all these documents. It took months to get them from the city of Evanston. At first, they told us there was nothing there. But we, we found out that what happened was they, they sort of uh, had these women feeling, young women or young girls, feeling that they blew off their complaints in 2019. Same manager shows up in 2020. They're like, what is he doing here? And they're like, well, let us know if he does anything again or if you, if you feel uncomfortable again. And their feeling was, you know, we've had enough, and if we don't do something, then uh, nothing's gonna change. And so they started this petition in 2020, which remained hidden out of public view for a year, until, as you said, I, I did some stories on this sort of thing at the Chicago Park District. And after that, it, last spring, some women came to me and said, you know, very similar thing has happened in Evanston. And we broke that story in, in July of last year, in Evanston. 
And uh, so what are what, some of the specific allegations uh, in Evanston as opposed to Chicago? We've discussed Chicago allegations, including rape. Uh, and what are the allegations in Evanston? Very serious stuff, uh, Ben. Uh, this was a petition that was signed by 56 current and former uh, employees, all female, uh, all of them uh, signing their names to a statement that said that there was rampant uh, hazing, sexual harassment, uh, sexual violence, uh, even racism at the beaches of Evanston, primarily from male uh, superiors, male managers and supervisors, uh, as they're called, um, in, in the hierarchy that they have at the, the Evanston parks and the Evanston beaches. And they left some room underneath that. It was a Google document. So they left room underneath that for people to give anonymous uh, testimonies about what they personally had experienced. And you did have women who say that they were uh, sexually assaulted, women who said that they were violated while they were unconscious because they were intoxicated and could not give consent, as well as um, you know a variety of, of uh, sexual harassment and, um, you know, relationships between young men and and girls who were underage, which obviously is illegal also, uh, as it's alleged in the petition. And uh, that was uh, some of the allegations that we we saw when we got a copy of the petition last year. And that was what was turned into the city officials, at some level at least, uh, in 2020. Uh, and you point out uh, that Evanston didn't just immediately turn the documents over. And I'm smiling at me just saying that uh, so many articles or columns I've written uh, about your work over the years. Is talk, it talks about how difficult it is uh, to wrench public documents out of public bodies, even though there's a law that specifies what they have to give you. Uh, and uh, I think actually uh, you have the same lawyer I do. And I think, think you have Matt Topic as your lawyer. Correct. Shut up. Yeah, he's so outstanding. You just a bulldog. Got- yeah. Uh, and um, so what's going on in your humble opinion? Why do they resist? Why do municipalities like Evanston and Chicago uh, and all the bureaucracies within the public schools of Chicago, uh, the um, park district of Chicago, and now apparently Evanston's as well. Why do they resist? Why is their knee jerk response to a, a request from a Danielopoulos? Is it to resist it? Because they can, uh, you know, and they buy themselves time uh, or they feel that the hit that they will take from uh, being not transparent uh, will not be as bad as the hit that they would take if those uh, public records were released. I should say, in Evanston, we haven't uh, sued them. We, we haven't had to sue them. Uh, there, we were looking for the records from that internal investigation for a while, and they claimed they couldn't find it in the guy's personnel file, probably because they didn't uh, discipline him. But eventually, we found some documents which referenced this investigation and said to them, hey, we're going to put in another request for anything you have. And, you know, lo and behold, they, they turned over 14 pages, which formed the basis of, of a lot of the story that, that we um, broadcast and, and published online yesterday. Uh, City of Chicago Park District, we have had to sue uh, both the mayor's office and the park district for what we think are pretty basic public records. I'll give you just one example. You remember the CEO of the um, Chicago Park District who resigned last fall after first saying that he 
felt that he, he had done a great job in, in handling this matter and that he was the man to reform the park district and in he maintained that position and still maintains it, I think, although the mayor forced him to resign and a number of aldermen had called for his resignation. Mike Kelly, we asked for his personnel file. You know, who recommended you? It's not, you have references on your job application, whether you're applying for a public job or, or in a newsroom. Who was his references? They deleted that. And we had to sue them. And we, we did get it now long after he resigned. I, I don't remember off the top of my head who it was, but it was a couple of very prominent uh, people in the Rich Daly administration because it was around 2003 or so, if I recall correctly, that it was during the daily years that Mike Kelly first went from the mayor's office from City Hall to the Park District. He was somebody somebody sent, which is fine. There's nothing uh, inherently wrong about that. But why were they hiding that? Why did we have to sue to get that? And, you know, when we sue, we don't pay the lawyers. The lawyers get paid by the public body, by the public, after these public officials have illegally stonewalled and are found to be doing that. And so there will be a tab uh, that they're running up on our dime, on everybody's dime, at least in the city of Chicago in that case, um, or in the whole state when it's the state of Illinois, and that, 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 that bill is, is due, and they, they don't care. They don't have to pay it out of their own pockets. So why shouldn't they delay us, and why shouldn't they obfuscate, and why shouldn't they uh, blow smoke up the uh, orifices of uh, the, the Dan Mihalopoulos' and uh, other investigative reporters of Chicago? Yeah, that's a good riff. Uh, you're absolutely correct. They do it because they can. That's That sums it all up. Uh, I think I'm going to steal that line and use it in my next column. They do it because they can. Uh, All right. Uh, You've now uh, taken a deep dive uh, into two park districts and how they handle this. Uh, One in Evanston uh, and one in Chicago. Uh, You're a neutral observer in this having uh, you're not from either town. Uh, So uh, (laughs) uh, compare and contrast uh, Evanston and Chicago uh, on how they handle very serious allegations of sexual assault and how they handle uh, requests from reporters like yourself uh, to get at public information. Well, it's difficult to make an apples to apples comparison, but I do think that there was more public pressure immediately in Evanston than there was in Chicago, that it took a while for it to build in Chicago and that may simply have been because the mayor said, you know, it's under investigation. We'll let it continue like that. Eventually, there were signs that they messed up the investigation and they had to bring in outside lawyers to look at their own handling of the matter and to help with investigating the underlying allegations. Now, the state's attorney is involved in Chicago, brought charges against one supervisor of lifeguards at Humboldt Park. Maybe there'll be other cases. They're also looking at the whole handling of the matter uh, as well um, from a criminal perspective um, as the prosecutors in Cook County. Evanston, you know, within days had a meeting, a big meeting uh, at that Civic Center, uh, practically the day after the first story was published last July. And within days after that, they hired a law firm that is continuing to investigate. They say that they will be done uh, investigating it shortly And certainly with our story yesterday, we gave them some more fodder to chew on, uh, some of which may not uh, have uh, been found by them at this point. It may be new to them, but we shall see um, if um, that situation uh, is wrapped up 
in a more complete and, and thorough and quick fashion than, than was the case in Chicago. Certainly lots of heads have rolled at the top. You know, in Evanston, you had the city manager, you had the human resources director, you had uh, a number of other people involved in, in the beaches uh, and, and that, that resigned or left. And in Chicago, you also had the resignations, obviously, of the uh, CEO, as we discussed earlier, and the park's board president, uh, Avis Lavelle, whose own clout extends back to, to Rich Daly's time. Yeah, uh, uh, Jim Coogan, uh, our next guest is here. We're going to uh, wrap this one up, uh, Dan. But I have to ask you this one last question uh, on this matter, contrasting and comparing. Uh, how have the mayors of each town handled it? How would you, obviously, Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, here in the city of Chicago, but a lot of our listeners, well, most of my listeners are very politically astute. They know that Dan Biss, who made a name for himself uh, running for a governor in the 2018 uh, Democratic primaries, the mayor of Evanston. So how would you compare and contrast uh, Biss and uh, uh, Mayor Lightfoot and how they've handled these these scandals? Well, really quickly, Mayor Lightfoot, you know, at first uh, got sick of us asking about it until we showed some problems in the Park District Inspector General's office. And uh, then suddenly it's like they flipped the switch and, and realized that, you know, we need a more credible uh, outside look at this. And, and she started to take it much more seriously and, and stopped defending uh, the Park District uh, CEO and, and the president of the board. Daniel Biss was only elected last year. Um, this petition came in when there was another guy who was mayor, a guy named Steve Haggerty. And uh, Daniel Biss uh, did something in Evanston, which you'll never see in Chicago because it's a, a weak mayor um, you know, form of government in um, in Evanston, uh, not just on paper, but in reality, the city officials were defending their handling of the matter in Evanston when we first confronted them with a petition and other uh, allegations from these lifeguards and other young female beach workers. And Dan Bisk issued a statement that's like, I'm not convinced they did the right thing here. So when you have two separate statements from the mayor's office and from the city manager, Obviously, the city manager uh, didn't last much longer yeah. because a majority of the council, I think, was with this on that. And um, pretty shortly, they, they issued an apology to the lifeguards. And ultimately, that's happened in both Chicago and Evanston. But, but different processes, as you as you're, I guess, we're hinting with your question. Yeah, well, maybe uh, Biss felt a little more f uh, freedom to speak out uh, because it did not happen under him. But then again, I watched Correct. Mayor Lori Lightfoot stuff that doesn't happen under her. <laughs> so I don't understand it. But we're going to resist going down the path of the engine at Young case. Uh, I'm just. Yeah, back. can't help you there. Uh, well, yeah, I could fill up an hour on that one uh, alone. Uh, Dan Mielopoulos, uh thank you so much for being My on pleasure. the show and the good work you do. And, uh, Thanks for having uh, me. I said I was going to resist bringing up basketball. Uh, Dan also comes on the show time to time. He talks basketball. He loves the Milwaukee Bucks, ladies and gentlemen. I do not understand I, it. I, I like Giannis. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he likes Giannis. <laughs> so uh, we'll bring you on in a couple weeks. And uh, uh, the Bulls play the Bucks on the fourth. And I think that yeah. might be good time to break i'm gonna go out. to that game definitely you have I, tickets? I, a friend of mine got tickets yeah we're gonna we're gonna yeah i still owe him for it but yeah all right <laughs> very good so we'll bring you over we'll have that conversation there and we'll hear dan's uh, defense of grayson allen i'm really looking forward to that i, one. I didn't say <laughs> i'd do that <laughs> <laughs> just teasing all right dan really good work i appreciate all the work you do and thanks for coming on the show all right man thank you
That's uh, Dan Mialopoulos. And now Jim Coogan joins us, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan. Uh, and uh, Jim, first of all, welcome to the show. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me back. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, Jim and I have been having conversations about legal matters since the days I worked for that radio station, but I can't remember the name of it. I know they fired me. I do remember that. But they didn't fire me because any conversation I had with Jim Coogan, I can assure you that, or maybe they did and I didn't know Who it. Knows? We don't uh, know yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I was effectively an at-will employee, Jim, so I didn't really have much uh, protection. But by sheer chance, I sent this to Jim so he knows where I'm going. By sheer chance, my Facebook feed had a photo. This day, four years ago or something like that, and there's a picture of uh, Jim and myself uh, in the studio. And as Jim pointed out, uh, in the corner, uh, you see a TV screen, a TV monitor, and that monitor uh, has a, is linked to a camera in the other uh, studio they had. And there's Dr. D, <laughs> DeMarvelous, as we call him, sitting behind, running this whole show. So some things never change. Uh, that was four years ago. Can't believe all the time has gone by. Well, somebody had to mind what you were doing and help you through the process. <laughs> That's true. So somebody. Dennis kind of looming over you was very representative. Yes, there he is right now. Uh, Dennis, can you believe that before we get into the gym? Can you believe that? That was my uh, Facebook feed. It was a photo uh, Melissa took, my old friend Melissa from the station. All right. Um, when originally I reached out to Jim and said, come on the show, I gave him a homework assignment, and it was a really big homework assignment uh, to read a, a lengthy essay or article in the, the uh, New Yorker about Ginny Thomas, who is uh, the wife of Clarence Thomas, uh, the longstanding conservative, and I emphasize conservative justice on the Supreme Court, and the issues of conflict of interest. And I have a copy, hold on, of that article here circled with all these like questions to ask Coogan, got to ask Coogan about this one and that one. And then since then, at least five legal stories that we've been talking about have popped up. Uh, and I, I, I kept expanding the list to Jim of things we're going to talk about. So it's going to be more like a smorgasbord today instead of a deep dive. We have a lot of issues to get to. Uh, so what I do when I have a lot of issues, uh, Jim, is I take the big board and I turn it. Whatever it lands, that's the issue we talk about. Ching, Patrick Daly Thompson convicted by a jury yesterday uh, in Chicago uh, on corruption charges. There's no sentencing, obviously. That won't be for several months. And I've already talked about it a little bit with Dan Mialopoulos from WBEZ. Uh, but here's my question for you. Patrick Daly Thompson, of course, uh, is the grandson of one mayor and the nephew of another mayor. Uh, he was the alderman of the 11th Ward. Very, he was the last, really the last of the dailies to be uh, active in politics. Uh, my question to you is this. Uh, the lawyer for Daly, uh, Gare, uh, argued that it was a simple case. Chris Gare, he argued that it was a, it was a simple case of a, a very busy man who had a lot of obligations and was juggling a lot of different things in his life, uh, overlooking the fact that uh, he had <laughs> he was overlooking the fact that he was declaring uh, interest payments on his tax forms that he wasn't actually making, which is a pretty interesting thing to overlook. I mean, the man's busy. Uh, that was the argument. Uh, you're a, uh, uh, a lawyer. You uh, go into court all the time and you argue in front of juries. Uh, that argument was made by uh, uh, Chris Gare without putting Thompson on the stand, mm. which I thought was, well, 
I'm going to not say what I thought and we'll turn to you and what you thought. So do you think that argument works when you don't put the uh, defendant on the stand? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a gr- that's a very good question because your uh, defense there, the defense that they chose to go with, centers on his activities, his state of mind, and really the excuse that they offered, which as we now see, the jury didn't believe that that was a legitimate excuse, uh, is based entirely on his position. Now, I mean, look, that could be analogized to almost any criminal case, the notion that depending on what the explanation is, it would have to come directly from the defendant. But that's, I don't know, that's not really true. If, you, if you're saying your guy wasn't there when the robbery happened and it was these other defendants, that's a different kind of thing. Someone else can offer that alibi for him. But here, uh, it's based on his own failure to accurately go through his own tax returns to make sure that whatever documentation he's giving to his accountant that they're using to base these uh, claims that, and look, I mean, that's what you're, you point out that, you know, people hear about tax evasion, what, what might it have been about? It's pretty egregious when you get a loan that the bank apparently had no interest in actually collecting the payments on, which was, which can be interpreted as based entirely upon his political power and his position that he would get such a generous uh, financial gift from a bank. Banks are usually not in the, in the business of giving out gifts. So not only that, but then he's claiming that he's making these payments and getting tax benefits as a consequence, because when you have different interest payments, you can, you know, look at it, look, get deductions for that. Not a tax expert myself, but I know that would be the point of it. Mm-hmm. So I guess under those circumstances, I heard he's busy. He's a politician. He's an alderman. It's hard, these things got away from him a little bit. But you're doing something where you're actively claiming entitlement to a tax benefit that you're not really entitled to. I don't. I don't understand. Um, I mean, look, it's it's a it's a gamble. It's a it's a cost benefit analysis, as you well know. Uh, the Fifth Amendment protects uh, Alderman, former Alderman, soon to be former Alderman Tom, Thompson, from having to testify at all. You're not obligated to testify. Uh, to defend yourself. So it's a gamble whether the jury is going to believe that case without that there, or is it worse if you, if you put him up on the stand and he gets cross-examined with all the documents that he probably signed and all the receipts that he, I don't know, phonied up or whatever my other evidence they could have shown him uh, that the prosecution had because there would have been attachments to these tax filings. Yeah. I, uh, I get that. It's a, uh, uh... It's a big decision that the lawyer has to make. Uh, and that's and what I, it ultimately is, right? I mean, look, yeah. the, you can come up with a plausible explanation for something that maybe deep down the lawyer knows just isn't going to fly, but it's better than what you know is going to be an entire, an utter failure if he gets up in the stand and tries to explain these things and stumbles all over the place, and it's a mess. Yeah. So well, that, it's kind of rolling the dice, really. Uh, that could be the prove the point theory. 
Look, he's stumbling. See, he doesn't know anything. Uh, I remember a. Um, it sounds like something Johnny Cochran could have come up with. Yeah. See, look, he's, he, really <laughs> he doesn't know anything. What's happening here? There was a case, and I'm going. This is going way back uh, of corruption in Chicago, and it was a treasurer whose name I can't remember at the moment. I think it was a Cook County treasurer. Anyway, he got into some kind of corruption charge, uh, and he argued he didn't understand finances, which was hilarious because he was the treasurer. <laughs> I mean, and I, uh, I, I wow. think he he got convicted, uh, but it was fun. It it, it was uh, it was quite a reach, I thought, in the Daily Thompson uh, uh, trial as well, because you had people coming on testifying to his good character, talk about how brilliant he is and how hardworking he is. But then they had to deal with this. Oh, if he's so brilliant and so hardworking, how could he over, you know, miss this one? Uh, so it was. <laughs> You know, it was uh, it was a stretch. Monday morning quarterbacking, uh, Jim. Uh, it's easy for all of us to do. You know, it was uh, obviously Chris Gare had to make that decision. And uh, well, look, you know, the, the reality with with those kind of criminal cases, and I, I was having a conversation about this recently with somebody um, who's getting into the law and was kind of asking around to different contacts. So they got in contact with me, and I was describing what we do as a as injury lawyers. We're in in a unique position kind of like a prosecutor in the sense that we get to choose the cases that we work on it means we have the responsibility for vetting them and knowing what we're doing and whether this is a viable case and sometimes we're not correct you know eventually the case uh, maybe facts come out about the injuries that are not as good as we thought they were and and we're not 100 percent right about the uh strengths of the case or we find out other information that we didn't know when we were signing it up turns out to be a problem but at least we get to choose. Whereas if you're a public defender yeah. or you're the insurance company's lawyer defending a case, it falls on your desk <laughs> and you're not, you know, this, this guy or gal is entitled to a defense and you have an obligation to do the best you can. You might know deep down that that case is never going to be a winner, but if the plea deal that they're offering isn't worth it or your client is intransigent and does not want to listen and will not take a deal, then you got to put on that trial for them. And uh, you might, you're only picking the best of a bunch of bad options yeah. when putting on that particular defense. And there could have been other theories they could have come up with, but including whether or not Daley Thompson testified. But yeah. that's really, that's the, that's what is tough about being on the defense side. I don't usually give those folks as much credit because I'm fighting with them a lot of the time, but I, I recognize that they are in a different position in that regard. Yeah. Uh, that thing I, falls on their desk and they got to make something out of it. I, I uh, and I will, I'm going to leave the t uh, uh, the Daily Thompson. We move to uh, our second issue, but I will point out that uh, the lawyer Chris Gare, uh, papers noted he was a former prosecutor. I got to always get a kick out of this. Uh, they learn the tricks of the trade by being prosecutors, uh, and that uh, there's a ceiling on how much they can make, obviously because they're public employees. Uh, and then they go and use all those tricks of the trade in the uh, def uh, the defense world, and there's not, I guess. There is a ceiling depending on how much how how deep the pockets are of their clients, but it's a higher ceiling. Let's put it that way. And uh, Garrett was like, if his name wasn't Daly, they never would have prosecuted him. And it was just like a showboat prosecution. I'm like, look, I have to laugh when I hear it. lawyers. You you're trained to argue both sides because Garrett guarantee you, if he was a prosecutor, he'd be going after a big name defendant like Daly Thompson too. So he could have said, you know. I know because I used to be a, a prosecutor. Let me tell you, this is what we do to get our reputation so that we become 
Criminal defense lawyers. Yeah, I mean, you got to if that turned into him questioning the integrity of the prosecutors in that case, then that would have been a line that he shouldn't cross. And ultimately, I think that you're you're 100 percent right. That's part of it. That deep down, if he were still in the prosecutor's office, that'd be a big fish. That'd be a big conviction to get. Um, but that, uh, that's something you might say to the reporters after the trial and not in front of the jury, because we, we still try to abide by certain ethics rules and evidence rules. But All they right, don't fair. apply to Ben Jarofsky, so you're okay. <laughs> it's easy, Like I said, it's really easy to be a Monday morning quarterback uh, if you're speaking to a microphone on a podcast uh, <laughs> and you're not really uh, – Beholden to a jury, you're not beholden to a jury at all. All right. Speaking of juries and cases, uh, this is a topic I've been really uh, mini obsessed with, but I haven't talked much about it on the show. Sarah Palin's uh, a libel lawsuit against the New York Times that just my phone tells me the jury came in. This is breaking news, literally breaking news in the Benderovsky show, uh, and the jury came in in favor of the New York Times. They ruled oh, against thanks. Sarah Palin, and. Uh, a jury ruled, here's just the, the lead, a jury ruled against Sarah Palin in her defamation lawsuit against the New York Times. Uh, Ms. Palin is expected to appeal. Yes, absolutely. She's expected to appeal. And I know, Jim, you're going to take a deep dive, a mini deep dive under this one, because this is a fascinating, what I would call, uh, this is an attempt to use the courthouse as a political tool to punish the New York Times for being what it is, uh, you know, uh, a newspaper that editorial leans to the liberal side of things. Isn't not as far left as I want him to go, but in terms of Sarah Palin, it's like, it might as well be, you know, it's the Soviet union. And, um, so I believe that this is her attempt to punish them, uh, and make them pay. Uh, and there's all sorts of machinations going here. The, uh, the, the judge threw the case out a rule dismissed it yesterday pending the jury just explain it all jim as much as, as well as you can because this gets kind of complicated but i think it's a very important issue well it's funny that you mentioned the soviet union because i think when miss palin was a vice presidential candidate she she uh offered as one of her bona fides that she could see the soviet union from her house in alaska but anyway uh that is uh way off the point so it is a big it's an important case um, because the fundamental thing that it is trying to attack is a precedent that's been in constitutional law as it applies to journalism for 60 years or so, uh, the Sullivan versus New York Times case, which basically says that the bar for suing for defamation against a journalist for when the person who's claiming that they were defamed is a public figure is extremely high. You have to prove actual malice. You have to show that the defendant, whichever, whatever publication it was that you're suing showed an utter disregard for whether the truth, whether they, what they were publishing was true. Interestingly, in this case, there was the thing that this is all centered on. It goes back about 10 years because uh, Ms. Ms. Palin had previously put together this, political action committee after she was a, a, a you know, running mate with John McCain and, and did not get elected to the, to the presidency and continued to be a big public figure. And later on, she, one of the things that her PAC did was created this website, I think with, with these essentially looking at districts around the country that were targets, which is a, I'm specifically using the word targets to try to flip those seats because the map used actual like uh, 
gun range targets. Uh, and, the, and one of them, uh, after the fact, one of them actually turned out to be the district where Gabby Giffords was a representative from Arizona. So it was, look, first of all, it's, it was tasteless at the time. Regardless of whether anybody was ever later attacked, I think it was a really tasteless move, and I don't care how they want to defend that. I think it's kind of grotesque. You're talking about your political opponents. Let's not use shooting targets to identify who they are. Either we can have a real civil discourse and have an actual, you know, discussion about whether you're the best candidate or your party's candidate is better, or we can't. Targets, I'm not a fan of. I, I think that was really the, an awful thing to do in the first place. But there had been subsequent arguments or claims that that targeting diagram was part of an overall, uh, I guess, putting it into the public discourse that somehow targeting was okay. And so when Gabby Giffords was, was attacked and shot among other people who were at an event that were killed, uh, that, that somehow this was responsible, that Sarah Palin's PAC was responsible for it. There were suggestions about that. Now, coming to the present story, a few years later, as people probably recall, there was a shooting at the congressional softball game that they have every spring or had every spring. And the New York Times editorial page published something that connected the two, that this, this Sarah Pack and this prior use of targets for congressional districts somehow played into the, the, I guess, the psychosis of the guy who later on went and shot a few different congressmen, including Steve Scalise, the, I think he's the minority whip for the Republicans in the House now from Louisiana. Um, so the editorial page made this connection and then took it down the next day. I guess the guy who had been the editorial, the uh, editor at the time testified in the case and said he regrets it. He's, he, I don't know how much of an, um, overstatement this might be, but he was talking about how he thinks about it every day about the decision, but he probably does because I think it led to him getting fired in the first place. So. Uh, ultimately, Sarah Palin sued the New York Times for defamation over this editorial that linked her website and her pack to the shooting of uh, the congressional softball game. Case had been going on for about five years till it finally got to trial, and has been mentioned in a sort of a strange move, but it it does make sense. I think the judge actually tipped his hand that yesterday, as the jury was deliberating, he indicated that he would be dismissing the case on the merits. Because what they, what you could, one, I assume this is what he was referring to. Procedurally, if you have a jury listen to an entire case, render a verdict, after it's over, the parties can still move, ask the court to find that the, the jury's verdict should be set aside because the case was not sufficiently presented as a matter of law. Yeah. Uh, JNOV is, is the, the term that lawyers would use. Now, normally you do that after the jury's verdict comes in, but I guess, you know, not knowing exactly what was in that transcript from the judge, um, he must have been tipping his hand maybe just to reassure the parties that regardless of whether or not there's a verdict in favor of Ms. Palin, that he already would still find that they, Ms. Palin's attorneys, had not proven sufficiently under the law the actual elements of a claim for journalistic uh, defamation here. So that was released last night that he had made this statement in court while the jury was deliberating. Now, being the the intrepid journalist that he is, Ben breaks the news on the show here <laughs> that apparently the jury agrees with that. 
But the point, the, the other point that the judge made about this was it made sense for the jury to continue their deliberations and actually render a verdict so that in the event that the appellate court reversed his decision, they wouldn't have to go back and put the entire trial on again. There's been a trial on the merits. I'm not entirely sure how that works procedurally in New York, but I guess that's a thing that, you know, because I don't know if they'll, they'll claim some prejudice that he released this information. Maybe one of the jurors went home and read it, even though they're advised strictly not to read the news yeah. while they're in the midst of a case, and especially a high-profile case like this. Um, but, I mean, just based on what I know about the editorial itself and the facts surrounding its publication, I don't really think that they ever could have proven this case. But as you pointed out, the broader political purpose of filing this thing in the first place is to take another swipe at Sullivan and, in theory, depending on where this case goes to potentially the United States Supreme Court, see whether or not those justices might be interested in setting aside or re redefining the test and the standard for suing a publication for defamation as it relates to a public political figure. All right. Uh, and this will be a perfect transition. We'll go, we'll go with Ginny Thomas next uh, because you, ultimately the goal, I think, uh, is to get it to the Supremes. Uh, and But let's not uh, quit the Sarah Palin discussion yet. Um, I, I'm going to make a political observation. This is not a legal observation. Uh, this, The existence of this lawsuit filed by Sarah Palin, who was Trump before Trump, and is very much part of the MAGA movement, a forerunner of the MAGA movement, you might say, uh, it just exposes the, just the brazen hypocrisy of MAGA on the issue of free expression. <laughs> I do not know how in any universe you cannot, you would argue, if you believe in free expression, if you believe Dave Chappelle has a right to give a, uh, uh, a performance and mock and malign trans people, if you believe Joe Rogan has a right to have a podcast, and I believe this, Jim, I actually believe it, and, and to present his bizarre alternative views of medicine, of which he has no expertise. I might as well be talking about it. If you believe that, how can you not champion the right of the New York Times to make what is essentially... A what a uh, a metaphorical connection between using a shooting target over the head of somebody who got shot. I just it, if you she is using the power of the courts and ultimately she wants appointed judges who are political animals to be her instruments to attack her rivals. Jim, I'm moving into politics now, but you can handle it. I don't know how you could, in, in a, with a straight face, stand up for free expression for Joe Rogan and then turn around and go to court and cry like a little baby about a New York Times editorial. Please explain that to me. Well, I mean, I don't know if I would describe myself as a free speech maximalist, meaning that everything should be, you know, you can say whatever you want whenever you want to. Um, but I think that the, the notion of free speech and free expression, uh, I've been frustrated by this for a very long time, just as an observer of political discussion in this country, because there's, number one, there's always a distinction between whether it's government action that is prohibiting you from saying something that you're entitled to say, because there's even exceptions to that. You can prosecute somebody for inciting violence. You can prosecute somebody for screaming fire in a crowded theater falsely and causing a bunch of people to be hurt. 
So there's even exceptions to whether the you know restrictions on government, restrictions on free speech. But oftentimes the whole notion of free speech also gets tangled up with whether people are on a private company's platform. So we have that problem in this country that oftentimes it, it has been very consistent, particularly since the Trump era began, a cry from the right wing that people are being censored or denied their rights to free speech because they're not allowed to post things on, on platforms that are owned by shareholders. <laughs> so that's, that, that's always one thing that gets muddled here. Now, this would be use of actual government power, saying that uh, a defamation claim, which would be a civil claim that's enforced by the courts and enforced by government, is restricting the, the journalist's ability to say what they want to say. So that would at least be true in the sense of it's actually an argument about the First Amendment and journalism's ability to say things. But, you, I mean, look, you're right. There is no way to defend the, the inconsistency between constantly trying to shout down people and say that they can't say certain things and then demanding that everything you say should be fine, that you, you shouldn't be deplatformed, there should be no restrictions on it, that it's just tech oligarchs and leftists that are trying to silence you, but you're also going to sue the New York Times when it's convenient. So it's more a free speech conveniencism as opposed to free speech uh, purists or maximalism, which I think a lot of folks who lean conservative would like to think that they are. But then when you get into the practicalities of day-to-day -day life and these discussions, their actions aren't consistent with that. So they want to, you know, everybody, I mean, most Americans, if you ask them, are you in favor of the freedom of speech? It's, most people would say yes. I mean, that you might get a 99% poll result on that. But then you get into, well, how is this actually applied? And, and are you going to be consistent with it? No, there's an enormous amount of inconsistency. And most of the time, I think this is something you have, you use this comparison all the time on the show. It's used as a tactic as opposed to having anything to do with any principles about whether or not the government is overreaching in regulating speech. And, and it's just another tactic. It's just another, and potentially, um, knocking some armor off of the strength of that, uh, I would say bedrock journalistic protection of that, that Sullivan case would be a huge prize to go after, to potentially change the ability of, you know, journalists to write things and publish things and investigate things. Because if, you're, if your only purpose is to have power and you don't care how you get there, well then this would be consistent with that thesis. Yeah. No, uh, the inconsistencies abound, and 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 yes, uh, I know you were quoting me. It's one of my favorite things. I think I say it at night when I'm sleeping. It's a tactic. It's not a principle. I told you uh, I listen to the show, Ben, even when I'm not on it. <laughs> no, you do, you do, uh, and uh, but I, it is one of my favorite uh, messages. Uh, if if I do nothing else, uh, is. And I say, you know, Jim, I'm going to go to a quick tangent. I was blessed. I should write a column about this. I was blessed uh, very early age to have a publisher editor, John McDermott, who preached to us the need to be objective. And there's an objective truth that we're searching for. And you should all be about that pursuit of that truth. And you should put aside all your And I actually bought into that as a very young, naive, impressionistic uh, idealistic 22 year old, you know, I really believed in it. Uh, and then I go out of the big world and I go, no, <laughs> they just say things, anything they have to say at that very moment to win a fight. 
Uh, and uh, so it's sort of like the education of young Benny. But uh, there, this, the, the tactic was on display, Hulk Hogan's lawsuit. I don't know if we ever talked about that. That may have been before the time you and I have been having these conversations against yes, Gawker. Yes, Gawker. I was blanking on the name Gawker. Uh, and he put that, and they put it out of business. Now, I do not believe Sarah Palin can put the New York Times out of business. The New York Times, a public traded corporation, is doing very well uh, right now uh, as an enterprise. I do not believe she could put them out of business, but it could be a huge judgment on them. It could silence them on, on particular issues. It would cause them to pull back uh, and not be as vigorous. Uh, as they want to be, and uh, it gives you know their opponents uh, just more f- fodder to throw at them. So it's to me, it's just a political tactic in a larger game, uh, and it ultimately could go to the Supremes, and she could lose every step of the way. Which yeah. I get the feeling she's going to lose every step of the way, yeah. but. We're going to get into this because Ginny Thomas is next on the docket. Uh, You get to the Supremes, and if they have, as I think they would, an ideological mission that's above and beyond or different than what John McDermott talked about, the pursuit of the truth, they will be her allies in this effort to punish the New York Times. That's what I fear. Do you share my fear? Well, I mean, I I think that that is absolutely the purpose of this entire endeavor. Uh, It's it's clearly the point. I would, I want to mention, before I continue to answer the question about how this applies to the Supreme Court, I think that the, the more, the broader philosophical concern is this would also be the ability to basically turn the reporters of information, whether it's the Washington Post or the New York Times, which are the, and I guess CNN are the are the favorite uh, whipping, whipping you know I, identities of the right to say that that uh, these are you know evil institutions that are just publishing fake news and it's it's bad it's wrong, I mean it's it's a it's in keeping with the broader assault on what you just mentioned. I, granted, there is some naivete and in trying to pursue objective truth above all else just because it's really hard but i think it was i think mr mcdermott was right it still should be the point if you're writing about things if you're commenting about the world if you're trying to make a point about whether things are working well or not and how they should be changed if they're not i think objective truth is still worth pursuing so the notion that you just mentioned it even if this is not even if it's not successful at the supreme court level it still could potentially have some kind of chilling effect on the operation of not just the New York Times, but any other publication that wants to say something with an opinion on their editorial page about what they see in the world and whether it's wrong. So, you know, I've, I was offended by, and still am, by this this uh, cheap use of the term fake news to just blanketly dismiss anything that you just disagree with whenever you disagree with it from the start. And lawsuits against the New York Times over something like this, which, by the way, no matter how much of how offended Miss Palin wants to pretend like she is over this, she must have known when it was done back in 2011 that that's a really offensive way to portray your political opponents. We had a revolution where we, you know, threw off people who were basically neighbors and then had a civil war where a bunch of Americans killed each other over something. So this is, and it's not that long ago. So 
and there's plenty of political violence that actually happens. So pretending like somehow you're offended when somebody points out that that might have something, there might be something wrong with, with portraying it that way, I think is preposterous. I'm just going to say it. That's a, that's a, that's an opinion that I have about that. So this is all part of a broader assault on just what is objective truth? What's actually happening? And if there's no objective truth anywhere, then anything that's a ridiculous lie is good enough, I guess, as long as it's consistent with what you want to happen or seizing power or holding on to power illegally, etc. So that brings us, that dovetails perfectly with the idea of where does this go to the court? Because after the last guy who was in the White House was there, we have a completely different makeup of the court than we did before he took office in 2017, adding Neil Gorsuch, adding Brett Kavanaugh, adding Amy Coney Barrett. So now you've got, as the articles that, that you and I have been talking about or leading up to this podcast have discussed, a super majority of six to three on the court of conservatives that at least three of them, if not four, are, are very strong ideological conservatives that have written opinions that most people would think that is just, how could you interpret the law that way? Because it's so out of keeping with my general day-to-day understanding of what should be legal and what should be good policy. So at this point, the notion that there might be five votes to say that uh, we should lower the, the bar and that you can have a defamation case when you're a public figure instead of encouraging open and robust journalistic discussion of whether you're a good or a bad public figure. Um, it's not a bad gamble. I mean, it's certainly worth a shot. I think it, I didn't even think about the fact that it was filed in 2017, um, which would have been after uh, the last president took office. It's not probably not a coincidence thinking that maybe by the time the, the case wound its way all the way to the Supreme Court, which would take 10, 12 years, yeah. that there may be a, uh, an even more strong conservative ideology, which I actually don't. I mean, the only thing I have as far as uh, or, or my some reservation that that this might not lead to some change in that doctrine is that if you are a textualist, if you're an originalist and if that's how you portray yourself. I don't really know how you would suddenly reduce the power of the First Amendment where it says that the Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech and journalism. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how you can be a textualist and think that, that it would be okay to then censor that publication. But there might be some, I don't know, maybe they would point to like the Alien and Sedition Act or some other things that were going on in the first 20 years of the Republic as some sort of textualist support. Maybe there's a Federalist paper that talks about, you know, newspapers being uh, a bunch of hacks, which they kind of were back then, um, if you're a history buff. But I, I guess I'm sort of hoping that no matter how this gets to the Supreme Court, that they'll still affirm that that is the standard because weakening it would not help us as a country, in my opinion. Well, uh one of my uh, mom, may she rest in peace, favorite saying is where there's a will, there's a way. And uh, I could imagine what they come up with. Uh, I could just hear it in my mind. Uh, it, it, so we'll have to see. Uh, but let's move on to Ginny Thomas because she symbolizes uh, the will. 
in that sentence where there is a will, there's a way. Uh, and there, Ginny Thomas, as I said uh, at the outset, is the wife of Clarence Thomas, who's been, I think, he's the longest serving uh, justice since 1991 or two, whatever that was, when uh, George Bush, Daddy Bush, um, nominated him. Uh, he is. For, yes, he's the longest serving and from the get go. Hardcore right wing conservative doesn't budge. Uh, this is his worldview. I felt at the time I followed very closely uh, his uh, confirmation hearing. Uh, it turned uh, into a very provocative uh, battle between uh, himself uh, and uh, one of his former uh uh, employees over her allegations that he sexually harassed her, uh, that he would be uh, seeking vengeance ever since for from that confirmation hearing. I got a feeling that Brett Kavanaugh may be in the same boat. Uh, and it, in some ways, I view that. Now, this is my, by the way, uh, Clarence Thomas, First Amendment protected right to say what I want on a, uh, a podcast dedicated to free expression. So don't sue me. Um, but uh, Ginny Thomas is his wife. The New, the New Yorker did a, a long investigation, which uh, I required Jim to read. Thank you for reading it. Uh, and Jim, this I, I urge everybody to read this. It was such an eye-opening. Jane Mayer, I think it was what wrote it. Uh, eye-opening investigation that sort of conforms to this general uh, theme of shows we haven't had in a while, but we could definitely bring back. Uh, how is this legal? So how is it legal that an activist like Ginny Thomas, who is so involved in so many right wing causes, uh, can be married to a judge, a justice, a Supreme Court justice, the highest court in the land that will have to rule on many of the issues in which she is either a critic of or a proponent of uh, openly? So please explain this to me. Uh, if, as if this was um, the first day of a, uh, a seminar uh, in the basis of law. Go ahead. Well, I think in addition to how is it legal, I, I think it's worth asking, how is it that people basically didn't know this? I mean, I, I've been kind of aware of it. I've heard this before. Um, but I think part of the strategy has been for a long time that Miss Thomas is not a very public right-wing figure. She's influential. She's part of many groups that have a lot of power and money behind them to try to influence social policy. Uh, but she does not give a lot of interviews and she does not make herself out to have a very large or public profile presumably because she wouldn't want people to be paying attention to this and really noting whether or not, uh, for example, something that she's a proponent of, if either her group or a group affiliated with it is filing an amicus brief. We've talked about those before, just to remind everybody, when cases are brought before, particularly the United States Supreme Court or a state Supreme Court, the various advocacy groups can file these briefs with the permission of the court uh, amicus meaning friend of the court sort of saying look we're not a party to this case but we have some skin in the game and we know about this issue because this is what we look at all the time and we think that you should pay attention to these cases and these statistics and these other you know public policy deep dives that someone might have done and attach all kinds of things to, to give the justices additional ammunition because ultimately even though they like to pretend that it's not the case, they are still a policy-making institution, whether we're talking about this state's Supreme Court or any state's Supreme Court or the United States Supreme Court. 
it's unavoidable, even if that's something that they prefer not to acknowledge, um, because it's just the reality of things. Uh, you know, and if you have something where it's a very close question, say, for example, whether abortion will have continue to have its, its uh, protected status under the United States Constitution, the, ultimately, you can find any kind of legal rationalization you want for either side of that issue. It's really going to come down to a policy preference. And that's, I'm kind of bleeding over into the other article about Amy Coney Barrett, but the, the point that one of the professors that they interviewed made was an obvious one that you and I have talked about many times on this show, which is you can call it textualism. You can call yourself an originalist. You can go find, I don't know, a, a dictionary definition from a dictionary published in, 18, in 1782 that has a particular meaning that you want to use to say that your interpretation of a new thing like abortions in a medical context that are so radically different than anything that somebody from 1780 could understand, that a new thing should be governed by long dead voices and minds that you can't actually read. So originalism, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a clever way to spin writing policy decisions that you want to write. I'm sorry, it just is. And look, I, I understand that they have to have, the judges have a difficult job in that sense. They have to show that what they're doing is grounded legally, makes sense, isn't radical, follows precedent, and if you want to change precedent, changes it in a way that somehow still honors that precedent or has some other basis in the law. And frankly, you and I would both agree that if it wasn't for the ability to change some precedent, we'd be lost as a country. I mean, Dred Scott decision had to be set aside at some point. Um, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson had to be set aside. If we were just entirely stuck with precedent, it'd be a horrible world and things would never, certain things would never have gotten better. Uh, so it's a challenging concept, but I think oftentimes when you dress it up and try to make it seem like it's something more than it is, it's not really more persuasive. It's just what you want. And so that's kind of where this stuff ends up at. Now, yeah. going back to your question, your question was, how is this legal? So what the Ginny Thomas article raised was uh, kind of reinvigorating this question about whether or not United States Supreme Court justices should be subject to any ethical rules or canons of ethics. Judges, normal judges, not Supreme Court judges, are all subject to various rules and canons of ethics. They have to swear an oath to them, and if they fail to follow them, they can have their, they can have their robe taken away, they can be uh, kicked off the bench, they can lose their pension, they can have other, all other kinds of penalties if they fail to follow those ethics. But the most obvious and basic simple formulation is Judges should do things that avoid even the appearance of impropriety. So in any case where, you know, you're, you're a judge and your cousin happens to live next door to the property that's the subject of the litigation, you just recuse yourself. Yeah. Because, sure, nobody's saying that you can't be fair, but at the same time, why would you risk the possibility that you couldn't be fair? And why wouldn't you give those litigants the opportunity to have someone that has no chance of being biased in the case on something that's that obvious. And more importantly, the public has to have faith in the system. So anytime that you fail to do that, you'd potentially damage the whole judicial system and nobody should be that selfish. That's kind of really what the ethics rules are saying. Ironically, what? or separately, there are no specific rules that apply to the Supreme Court. 
And so that's why this is kind of coming up here. But I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, at the outset uh, amicus briefs. And there's a portion of this uh, article that I would like to quote to you and get to your uh, sort of explanation thoughts, uh, by the way. And I have the New York. This is the New Yorker article. Just so everybody knows. January 31st. Ginny Thomas's Crusades. It's called The Activism of Clarence Thomas's Wife's Risk Tarnishing the Supreme Court by Jane Mayer. So I just wanted to give Jane Mayer credit. It's a very uh, enlightening article. I urge everybody to read it if they can. Uh, I think you can just get it online. Anyway, um, so she interviews Paul Collins, a political science at the scientist at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, who has studied the use of amicus briefs. And he said, quote, there's been almost a linear increase in a number of them since World War II. Now it's a rare case it doesn't have one, end of quote. The reason uh, he says, is that, quote, more and more, the courts are seen as a venue for social change, end of quote. He explained that political groups, many with secret donors, are, quote, using the courts the way they use Congress. Basically, amicus briefs are a means of lobbying. And I underscored that and with a question mark to ask Jim, what does he mean when he says amicus briefs are a means of lobbying? Well, I, I mean, it, I think it's literally what he's saying here. Uh, you know, you can't talk to a Supreme Court judge about a case that's pending before the court. They won't talk about it. They won't do that. I mean, they've been judges for, most of them have been judges for a very long time, and that's an obvious one. You don't discuss cases that are before you, and generally speaking, unless you're just having a cocktail with somebody that you know on a personal level, they won't discuss things that they do professionally at all because they're trying to honor the sanctity of that notion that they're unbiased and that they're they're there are things about their thought process that are somehow sacred if they're going to act in this powerful capacity as a judge because they do have a great deal of power over our legal system it's the way it works um so when it comes to the supreme court as you just mentioned and we've been talking about these cases have enormous implications outside of even the specific context of those litigants that might bring that particular case, whether it's a, a couple that's suing for the right to be married as a gay couple, they're suing over their case, but obviously it's going to, if the Supreme court's hearing that case, it'll have implications over every potentially uh, a homosexual person in the country who wants to get married. So it's, it's got enormous sweeping implications. Same thing with the Supreme court case over the affordable care act or dozens of other cases that we don't even really talk about because there's just lots of things that go on there. So the only way to try to get the judge's ear would be to file one of these briefs. And ultimately, the other point, though, and I think is kind of dovetails from what that professor was saying, is some, some judges are going to look at certain amicus briefs more favorably than others. They'll be more influenced by certain groups and what they have to say based on, again, personal biases, whether we like it or not. That's going to influence whether they think that one group is a bunch of wingnuts and I'm not even going to read this thing. Or I really, I'm, I, you know, thank goodness that the Federalist Society told me what to say here because <laughs> I wouldn't know otherwise. Now I know what I'm supposed to decide. I'm, yeah. I'm a little facetious there. I don't think that anybody's really thinking that. I hope not. But ultimately, it's lobbying. And I mean, it's public lobbying. So at least it's not being done surreptitiously or behind closed doors or something like that, because these are briefs that everybody could read. The docket is public. Every, you know, huge case that might have a dozen briefs, you can go read them if you have 50 hours of extra time on your hands. Um, But 
it's a way to point out to these folks. It's look at it this way. It's really what they're saying is it's no different than if you're trying to call your senator and say, please support this bill or please vote against this bill. Because in this case, and, and you think about it this way, it's actually much more efficient because there's only nine of them. So you get more bang for your buck if you invest heavily into trying to influence them through a persuasive amicus brief that that touches on and gives them the ammunition they need to support the decision that you want them to make. Yeah. No, I, uh, yes, uh, your explanation really uh, is bringing it home to me. Uh, and so I'll, I'll put it in terms that I can understand because it's the world I live in. Let's say it's an abortion case and Planned Parenthood uh, weighs in with the uh, amicus brief, which I, guarantee you they have uh, already in every uh, abortion case comes before the the supremes uh, but if you're a liberal judge or a justice uh, on the court and you see uh, the planned parent you don't even have to read the brief you just see the planned parenthood's waving uh, weighing in jim uh, you know that that's going to resonate in the court of public opinion and that's going to influence how people of your political persuasion liberals will view you if you don't rule with Planned Parenthood and the same thing could be said uh, for a conservative judge let's say in a gun control case second amendment case if uh, the National Rifle Association weighs in you know how it's going to play and you don't even have to read the brief you, could, you probably are so used to all the arguments anyway that you know what it's going to say but you know this is their way I get your point this is where, their way of telling you okay justice we're watching you Sure. and I, you can't kick a judge they, these are lifelong appointments correct but they do exist in a world they are influenced uh, they want to be rewarded they want to do the right thing even if I disagree what the right thing is with some of these judges so I see your point uh, these are like leaving your calling cards, so to speak, with a judge just to let him or her know the ramifications uh, outside the courtroom. Well, and uh, you just made me think about one one degree further on that. If you think about it, when you see that that particular advocacy group is taking a position, okay, they're supposed to ignore public opinion, right? They're supposed to be true to some fundamental core legal principle that that is the reason and the basis for their decision. But not only do you know that that brief is out there, you know that the very public-facing PR people, the president of the NAACP or the president of Planned Parenthood or the president of uh, the NRA is going to be on all the talk shows and they're going to be writing op-ed articles. They're going to be putting ads out there and buying advocacy space on airwaves. So whatever your decision is, whether it's consistent with the principles that you think that they expect you to follow or not, the information is going to be out there. So not only are they watching, but they're yelling very loudly <laughs> to get the folks who, you know, every, average everyday folks who might believe in that particular issue or be against that particular position. So it's going to be on, it's going to be a matter of public consciousness and on their minds. Mm. Absolutely. All right, let's close with Sandy Hook. Uh, I think we did a pretty good job of covering a lot of territory today. It's a couple we're not going to get to, but uh, uh, the Sandy Hook case broke right before the Sarah Palin uh, case broke. And we have talked about this in the past. Uh, uh, Jim is a, a trial lawyer, a plaintiff's lawyer. That's how he makes his living. He certainly doesn't make his living talking on this podcast. <laughs> he 
I'm, you know, uh, I'm still waiting for that check, man. Yeah. Um, it was an appearance fee. No, I think it was. Yeah, Dennis is in charge of that. Uh, and uh, that's one of his many duties. Uh, so, uh, uh, this is a product liability. We've talked about this using product liability law uh, to force gun manufacturers to be more vigilant. Uh, about who buys their weapons and how the weapons are used. Uh, I've always thought this would be the first step the country should take uh, if we wanted to uh, deal with the carnage that's going on on a regular routine basis uh, throughout the country. It happens every day in the city of Chicago. So if uh, the gun manufacturer of the pistol that somebody used to kill uh another human being in the city of Chicago, if that gun manufacturer was accountable for that death, then maybe they would think twice about just allowing guns to be so widely, so easy to purchase, uh, particularly on the a secondary market, a little legal market. Uh, and uh, today I haven't had a chance really to take the deep dive on it. Um, the uh, Remington gun manufacturers uh, settled the case with the Sandy Hook. So why don't you explain a little bit about the case itself uh, and talk about the possible, and I understand it's just possible, uh, ramifications of this settlement. Yeah, the, it is really interesting. We, we discussed this before because the defendants in the case or the attorneys representing, uh, I guess Remington itself is bankrupt, but there are insurance policies that still apply to the liability here, which is fascinating to me because these are, these are the kinds of situations where sometimes there is no insurance or those insurance companies can fight over whether they're actually responsible for the thing that's being alleged uh, to have been the cause of some kind of injury or death. But uh, just looking at what was published about this, one of the phrases from the plaintiff's lawyer, Mr. It's Josh Koskoff uh, that I, I think he's in Connecticut. Um, the quote they had here was for the gun industry, it's time to stop recklessly marketing all guns to all people for all uses and instead ask how marketing can lower risk rather than court it. So what that reminds me that the original lawsuit was about the way they were marketing these guns, the way they were marketed as how to get your man card back and being tough and being aggressive. And I mean, obviously that's, not, that is directly contradictory to the rationale that we're often presented with by folks who want to protect the right of everybody to own a gun for any reason, which is self-defense. Yeah. Uh, getting your man card back and being tough. I mean, here I'm looking at the picture. Consider your man card reissued. That was a Bushmaster ad that the plaintiff's attorneys, I guess they put on some kind of a slide presentation when they were discussing to the press the the issues and the amount that they were settling this case for with the the families that they represented. So um, whether or not this might have some broader implications, I mean, I guess I don't study closely enough exactly how this may have already impacted the way that guns are marketed. I think that one other impact that it could have is if you think about who resists legislation that could govern straw purchases, uh, you know, like you mentioned, in the secondary market, whether somebody can, where and when they can resell a gun and, and one, under what circumstances is it legal to do so, those are things that could be legislated with 
I would say, no implications to the Second Amendment or destroying people's right to legally own a firearm if they are, that phrase that we always hear, law-abiding citizens. So um, I think that the other impact it could have is the, the manufacturers themselves might be less, might fight less uh, hard. They might not oppose changes at the state or federal level to some of the laws that would impact secondary markets and where it's purchased or even marketing restrictions on how this is done if it means that they could potentially be liable like this. And you're right. What, there's not, a, if anything, given the fact that whatever they're selling, any manufacturer's purpose is to make money. If you're going to, the only way to really influence a corporation who is a perpetual entity, you know, they can always find a new CEO. They can always find new marketing people. So if the only way to influence that entity is to threaten the thing that it is in existence for in the per- first place, which is to return money to their owners or to their shareholders. So if you're going to hit them in the pocketbook for $73 million when they've recklessly marketed this gun in a way that, that leads to somebody massacring a bunch of school children, then that could absolutely impact the behavior of the remaining companies that are manufacturing these style weapons. Yeah. I, uh, that's the argument. That's the hope anyway. Uh, and again, I, as I said, it's a settlement. Uh, it was a, a deal cut between the Sandy Hook, uh, uh, survivors. These are parents of children who were gunned down. Uh, what was it 2012? I want to say, it was. Uh, yeah, it was a horrific story. Uh, and it's just, just resonated in so many ways. We don't have time to take it. The, but the Alex Jones case where he uh, went on, uh, he's claimed that it was all made up, uh, that, that 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 itself is winding through uh, the courts. I'm not quite sure. I can't remember where that is. I think there was a judgment ruled against Alex Jones. You and Jim Coogan and I have discussed the Alex Jones case. Uh, so it just seems uh, as though uh, these tactics of the right um, are not always successful. Let's just put it that way. And uh, so I'm happy. To, I'm pleased with that initial settlement, but uh, I got to take the deeper dive on its ramifications. Uh, Jim, thanks so much. Uh, you, you were a good sport. You did all the reading and we didn't even get to um, uh, the Amy Coney Barrett article in the New York, the New Yorker. That'll be next time. Fascinating story in the New Yorker about the, the newest justice uh, and her ideology. It sort of, it's a, it's connected to the Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas story. Uh, and uh, it's no joke, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the, the right is really making a concerted effort uh, to use law as a political weapon. And they have some very powerful allies on this endeavor, to put it mildly. Um, Jim Coogan, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Hey, real quick, I just want to say also an honor to be on the same show as Dan Milopoulos. I, I follow him on Twitter, and I feel like I'm since I started doing it, I've read his stuff before. But I feel like I'm a lot more informed and a lot smarter now. So, you know, just, I, I, I just wanted to say that real quickly. I, I really appreciate his work. And as always, Ben, very happy to be with you, happy to read some stuff and do my homework, and hopefully I helped educate something about something. All right. Very good. Yes. And I am uh, thankful to Dan as well. It's a good friend of mine and he will be back. We will, we will be talking basketball the next time he returns. And also Jim Coogan is our White Sox correspondent. <laughs> Every political podcast needs a White Sox correspondent. Uh, I love the White Sox dearly as well. And, well, for uh, we now, two go Bulls. Go Bulls. Yes, go Bulls. He's also our uh, 
in the ranks of a Bulls correspondent as well. Uh, anyway, thank you very much, Jim Coogan. Also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Jim Coogan and Damian Lopoulos will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. And the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.